We're here with former Green Member of Parliament and uh, New Zealand political legend uh, Nandor Tantos, and uh, he's he's cropped up in the media again lately because there's been a lot of uh, discussion about the post-election analysis and you know what is the future for the Greens and and what should they be doing right now. Thank you so much for joining us, Nandor. How have you been? Yeah, I'm good. I'm, I'm good. Actually, I've been pretty well. I'm living in Fakatani now and um, really enjoying the Eastern Bay of Plenty. And um, yeah, life's pretty pretty fine, actually. And, yeah. and you're, on, you're on the district council there? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I'm, um, I was elected last October onto the district council, um, which I'm enjoying. It's quite different from central government. Um, it's much more kind of collegial. Um, I don't agree with my fellow councillors all the time but it's not it's not factionalized you know we 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 have different views on different things but they're not lined up along kind of faction lines so that's i because it means you can actually engage in a proper discussion with people about issues and um convince people to your point of view or, or be convinced of theirs so yeah that's no, good and before that you were dabbling in local body for a while i mean after you famously um resigned from parliament and smashed your watch there on the lectern uh you kind of uh hibernated for a little bit but then uh before you've been elected just now in last october you were on like a community board or something for a while before that weren't you no, I wasn't on a community board. I haven't. This is my first um, foray into local government, um, but I have been doing a few different things. But possibly, um, what you might be thinking of is I'm the I'm on the um, national council for permaculture in New Zealand. Ah, right. And that's probably one of the things that probably takes up um, a lot of my attention. Um, just in the sense that I think that permaculture um, has a huge amount to offer us in terms of the, the kind of the situation people, you know, humans find ourselves in now at the start of the 21st century, both in terms of kind of ecological crisis, climate change, um, uh, our water, waterways, you know, the, the, the oceans being uh, decimated, uh, as well as all the social and, and economic problems that we find find ourselves facing. I think permaculture has a huge um, amount to offer in terms of um, creating um, uh, nature-mimicking systems that is the best model of how to create sustainable, resilient and regenerative systems. So it's something I've put a lot of, lot of uh, focus into, not just permaculture in terms of um, land management and small holdings, which is often how it's applied, but my own interest is more about how do you apply those those design principles to business development, economic development, community development, those kinds of things. Excellent. Well, and I want to get into some of your recent commentary about uh, the situation that the Greens find themselves in post-election. But before that, I just wanted to talk a little mm. bit about, um, you know, your history with the Greens. And I guess, you know, you you are sort of an inspirational figure in my political life. And um, part of the reason why I moved to New Zealand and, and you're championing the cannabis issue and now that issue has really come of age, and I was just wondering, you know, what you thought about uh, being so far ahead of your time, uh, 15 years in fact, and kind of the controversy that you generated then, and, 
and and what you think you know about the the situation with the issue in New Zealand now. If you think you you were ahead of your time, or or if it hadn't been for you pushing the envelope back then, we we wouldn't have gotten to where we are today. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, well, first of all, thanks for your your very kind comments. Um, I, I, the first thing I'd say is that. It wasn't like I was out there on my own. You know, there's been a number of people who've given years of their lives to talking about cannabis law reform, rational drug policy, who spent, um, you know, energy investigating, researching, looking at what places have done, or, you know, looking at what's been done in other countries, analysing the, the failure of prohibition in this country in terms of trying to get some specific kind of information about how it's, <laughs> how it's failing us here. And so, you know, I wouldn't like to kind of um, make out that somehow I was a unique figure because there was, there was, there's plenty of people been working on this issue as well as the kind of side-related issues around hemp production and around medical marijuana and things like that. But I do think that um, certainly we wouldn't be where we are today without all people pushing the envelope some years ago. Um, and, of course, there's been an international movement as well. I mean, people have been... Um, working on this issue across the world and, um, and, and inspiring each other. And, um, you know, you, when, we, when we look at what's happened in the States just recently, I mean, that's really been um, a massive boost to the movement because you've actually now got some real working examples of a fully regulated market in Colorado and the like. And, and you know, that, that's been phenomenal. In fact, I was... Um, I was watching an interview with Greg O'Connor, who was the um, president of the police union, uh, police association, with, you know, which is the police union. And he's been someone who's been adamantly opposed to any kind of cannabis law reform for years. So when I was an MP, he was um, took it on himself to, to kind of firmly, publicly oppose any moves to, to, um, to move towards a rational drug policy. And it was interesting that after he went to Colorado, he actually came back. Um, well, what I saw was when he first came back, he was kind of saying, "We actually need to fully regulate the market. We actually move to a le- we need to move to a, a legalised market." And then he kind of, under pressure, uh, domestically, kind of backtracked from that and started saying, "Well, if we are going to move, then you know, decriminalisation can't work. We've got to move to, to something more." Yeah, like. Mm. Yeah, yeah, like what they do in Colorado, um, so he's kind of been, he kind of tried to backtrack, but um, but the example of what he saw there completely convinced him, and I think that's been enormously helpful for us in New Zealand. Uh, and in, in a way, the difficulty is that um, even now the major parties are still so reluctant to really do anything mm. serious. So you know we're seeing some support for medical use. But really, what the major parties haven't done is really grasp the idea that yet to, to resolve this, we have to move to a regulated market. But it's interesting that, you know, we, we can start talking about that stuff now. You know, five years ago or ten years ago, um, even talking about decriminalisation was a, was a huge thing. And now um, we can talk about a regulated market and, as I say, we've got the evidence now to, to point to. 
Yeah, well, it it definitely feels like we have passed a tipping point, and and I guess that's what I was, you know, meaning about you being ahead of your time, um, and not just you, obviously. I mean, yeah, some of us we've been saying the exact same thing the entire time. It's just uh, everybody else seems yeah. to have caught people up like yourself now. As well, that's right. Yeah, thank, thanks yeah. to uh, the global media, people are now catching up. But I just wondered, you know, yeah. you faced a lot of prejudice um, for being so out front on the issue uh, back in the day, and even. When Within the Green Party, um, at that time, you faced a bit of prejudice. And I mean, I always felt like if it hadn't been for that prejudice, you probably would have been the next male co-leader after Rod Donald. Um, but now the Greens have really come back to their, their roots in many ways. And, and they have realized that this is a vote winner for their constituency, not a vote loser. And they have kind of, um, as this election campaign progressed and definitely by the end, um, fully embraced exactly what you were just saying. You know, uh, what are your thoughts on, you know, where the Green Party has been and gone and gotten back to on this issue and, and the sort of prejudice you faced in that context? Yeah, I think um, I, I think you're right. You know, the Greens have always had a strong policy around um, cannabis law reform uh, from before I was a member of the when they were in the alliance. You know, the the individual Green Party always had some stuff around um, has always supported cannabis law reform, and that was one of the things that first interested me in the Greens because for me, it's kind of always been a bit of a litmus test. For a party, it's not that I've always thought cannabis is the most important issue. Uh, yeah, I'm not saying it's not important. It is an important issue, but it's never it's never been the most single most important issue for me. But what it is is it's a litmus test for a political party because if you if you see the evidence and you're still unwilling to take a stand on it to do the right thing, that says to me that. Um, that you have no integrity. Right. And so that's, that's what interests me in the Green Party in the first place was the fact that they had, they always had, um, always supported cannabis law reform. Um, with, with me being a, um, yeah, having been involved in the cannabis law reform movement before I became an MP and also being a, uh, you know, self-confessed cannabis user as a, as a rasta, um, I did sometimes wonder whether that was a helpful thing or a hindrance. Um, but probably a bit of both, because I think in some ways it's quite helpful to have someone who says, yes, I use cannabis and I'm not ashamed of it, um, just in terms of what it does for, um, yeah, for just raising the issue and being out there. But at the same time, it became very easy to dismiss me. And, you know, even today I still see people making stupid comments about <laughs> cannabis when, when I make some statement about something completely unrelated. So, you know, um, so I, I, it goes a bit both ways, but probably in the context of the time, it was probably useful to have someone unapologetically using cannabis when, when all the other politicians are basically saying variations of, oh, I, I tried it once, but I didn't inhale, <laughs> you know. Sure. Um, well, it, in terms of the Green Party, yes, yeah, I go. Oh, I was going to say it certainly got me to immigrate to New Zealand. <laughs> well, that's a that's a definite bonus because uh, you, you've made a huge contribution, you know, to the to that issue and others in in New Zealand. So, um, yes, yeah, so I'm Thanks very nice uh, to hear that. But as far as the Green Party goes, you're saying? Yeah, um, 
I mean, I think I, I think I remain disappointed in the way it played out in the Green Party. Um, I think, and, and in myself actually, uh, if I'd been more politically astute, and also if I'd had more support from the party at the time, we could have got cannabis law reform in some form through. I think in 1999. Yeah. But we um, we foolishly allowed ourselves to be bought off with a uh, a parliamentary inquiry. There'd been one previously into the mental health effects of cannabis, and that had recommended that we have that Parliament have an inquiry into the legal status, and that was the argument that Helen Clark used with us to say, "Oh, we need a." before we can have a mandate for changing the law, we need to have an inquiry into the legal status. But that was a mistake. We should have said, and at the time we had the leverage and we didn't really, I think, appreciate what we had. We had the leverage, we could have forced it through and said, no, let's just change the law now. Mm. And, um, and it's to my regret that we, we, didn't, we didn't, I you know, didn't really understand that. Um, but, I think also, but I think also the Green Party at the time was somewhat divided. We had um, some fairly conservative people in our caucus at that time who I think are no longer even members of the Greens. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was a bit half and half. Some people were really understood and need to issue. Some people didn't and were reluctant because it caused polarisation and controversy and, and criticism. And that's what any issue will do you know any issue that's important is going to draw criticism and polarization and you've just got to kind of walk through that really um but some people they found it hard to handle and so we kind of backed off it and um in fact um i was kind of prevented from even campaigning aggressively on the issue we we um the collective decision in the end was that we would kind of talk about it when it was we would defend ourselves when attacked which which again was a massive mistake because you, as soon as you do that you you give all the ground to your opponents and your your opponents define what you're going to fight on so you know, you're much better to go out and front foot the issue and take it take it out and, and assert it on your own terms um, so that that was a mistake and um, and over time I suppose the green support for cannabis law reform yeah there's always been i think there's always been people in, in the greens who have been strongly supportive like matilda Toure, of course so today was you know a member of normal long before she became an mp she she's always been um uh, a big strong advocate of uh cannabis law reform um but as a party it kind of took a took a bit of a back seat um and um, and while the, I think the Greens have always had the most progressive of any parliamentary party in terms of cannabis law reform and drug law reform generally, um, you know, they just kind of stopped uh, asserting it. They, they kind of put it in the background. Mm. And the issue kind of went off the boil. And I, I can't really blame the Greens for that because in the context of the time, the movement... Um, kind of went off the boil and there was yeah there's always been people working away at it but as a as a mass issue in the public consciousness it kind of it faded from sight a little bit and um i think there's there's a whole heap of reasons why that why that happened um but i don't think you know i don't yeah 
No. I think I suppose the thing now is that what's important is that the the, the kind of the wave is building again. There's these amazing examples of things happening overseas. In terms of the Greens, there's some really strong advocacy, and Julianne Genter in particular has really um, been a strong advocate for cannabis law reform, and I think done a really good job in that. Yeah, she's and embraced so it. The question, she's really embraced it. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I really like Julianne. I've, I've got a lot of respect for her. I think she's she's articulate. She's really intelligent. She's got a head around the issues. Um, and I suppose the thing for us uh, in, you know, just thinking wider than the Greens is we know that there's this momentum for change and now how can we make the most use of that? Um, and I think we have to think really strategically about how we can work together to um, to, to take it as far as we can because to, to have us have some half-assed medical marijuana thing would be really sad when there's an opportunity to do so much more. I, I agree. I definitely agree. Now, going back to the Greens, um, sort of when, you know, when you were what, what I would say passed over for the male co-leadership or there was kind of, as you say, the caucus was split on the cannabis issue and it wasn't just that issue. And, and I guess there was a... Um, uh, a move to sort of a de-hippification of the Greens and and a more yeah. uh, trying to present a an economic, um, you know, noose, uh, a, a, a sort of friendliness to business uh, to not spook the horses. Uh, and, and that also meant not spooking the horses with things like cannabis. And and uh, Russell Norman became the male co-leader. And, um, you know, he he looked a lot less hippie then uh, than he does now. But um it was it was back then that we first heard these um you know testing the waters or rumors of you know oh maybe the greens could go with national uh and of course um you know this was this was before national had gotten into government but uh russell was very sort of roundly criticized by the um you know the hard left party base uh back then for even floating the idea and it seems like uh, the Greens, you know, that they, they saw that as a third rail and, and never wanted to go there again. Now, of course, in the intervening years, you've had three terms of national and a lot of uh, exacerbation of social and environmental problems. Uh, but it's come up again in the media, this idea of, you know, should the Greens go with national to block Winston? Uh, and again, it's been almost universally shot down, even called a, um, you know, a, a Trojan horse only being promoted by national and not anyone actually in the Greens. Um, however, you wrote an opinion piece recently saying, you know, it shouldn't be categorically ruled out because that leads to a political dead end. However, not this time. Expand on your ideas there. Sure. Uh, just, to, just to talk to a couple of points that you raised there as well, just to say that, I mean, one of the reasons I think why cannabis went off the agenda for the Greens probably was because of Russell Norman's co-leadership. I mean, because um, I don't think he's anyone, he's a person who's ever been really supportive of the issue. And so I think that probably was played a big part in how the Greens kind of positioned themselves. Um, when Russell was criticised for raising the issue back in 2008 or whatever, um, I think probably one of the reasons is that uh, those who are kind of on the, you know, what you've described as the hard left of the party were probably deeply disappoint disappointed because, because I raised the issue during the co-leadership campaign and said at that time, if you, if you do an analysis 
of um, the Greens' strategic positioning, you know, we have to recognise that there's a fundamental problem, which is, and this is historically true, goes back to the Values Party, that when Labour does really well, the Greens do really badly, and Greens only have the opportunity to do well, and they've got to work hard to do it, but they, can, they only have the opportunity to do well when Labour is doing badly, because um, because we're kind of relying on those discontented Labour voters. And so if we want to... Um, if we want to get out of that trap, we have to find some new constituencies who aren't strongly left identified. They may not be, I'm not saying go after constituencies that are strongly right identified, I mean, that would be a mistake. But there's, there's I would say probably the bulk of uh, people in this country are not really, um, are not really left or right identified. Those labels have little meaning to them. And so, you know, we have to look at where where are the people we can draw into the Greens. Plus, if we want to build a, if we do want to support a Labour-led government, the best way to do that is to draw in, instead of swapping votes between Labour and Greens, we mm. actually need to draw in some new voters into the, into the alliance, and, which is actually what I think we did in 1999. I think the Greens actually brought in voters to support a, uh, a Labour-led government who, who wouldn't otherwise voting late strength of us in, in 99. So, um, and then the other thing is just in terms of the leverage, and I looked at what had happened in, not such in 99, but in 2002 and then 2005, um, where the Greens had pretty much been left out of the picture um, because we had said we would only support a Labour-led government and other parties which were prepared to go either way um, effectively held the balance of power. Had more and leverage, yeah. What it meant, yeah, yeah. And so, so the Green, what it what it meant was, in reality, even if we were part of a coalition, and we weren't in either of those. Uh, in fact, the Greens have never been part of coalition. But if we were in coalition, we wouldn't be able to do anything other than greenwash a Labour government if we weren't prepared to use a bit of leverage, you know, and actually. Um, you know, you, use, use the power that, that have been given to us by the voters. So I kind of raised the issue in that co-leadership debate. And, um, and in fact, that was really, in some ways, my main objective was to get the Greens thinking strategically about how they position themselves and where they were going and what, and, you know, what the plan was to make the Greens a stronger political force. Um, and Russell had kind of a, um, had taken a... Um, a, he was more dubious about that kind of idea. So I think one of the reasons why he was so soundly criticised is because when he became leader, he basically echoed in a lighter manner the same kind of idea. And I think a lot of the people on the on the hard left of the party who supported him to be co-leader were disappointed because that's why they'd supported him, so that that kind of discussion wouldn't happen. <laughs> um, yeah, so so I think so. Just in terms of putting the context, but now you know, now in two thousand and what seventeen, uh, we find ourselves. You know, the, the thing is that almost ten years later, the very dynamic that I talked about in two thousand and eight has just played itself out again in another round. That's right. That um, you know, the, the Greens. There was an outgoing Labor government after Helen Clark left. The the, the Labor was weak. They had no one really filling the leadership role 
in a way that was really attractive to voters. Labour support went down. The Greens were doing really well. They had really articulate, intelligent spokespeople on a range of issues. All those disaffected Labour voters went to the Greens. The Greens boosted up in the polls. And everyone thought, wow, the Greens are doing really, really well. And right up till, you know, till the Labour changed its leader in the last few weeks of the election, the Greens were up 15% and Labour was down. That's right. and, and people, people have blamed uh, Matilda's, um, you know, uh, confession, if you like, about having, um, uh, yeah, about what, when she was um, on the benefits for the decline in, in Green support. But if you look at it, that's not true. When she made her announcement, the support for the Greens went up. That's right. And it was only after Labour changed the leader, changed its leader to, to Jacinda, Labour went up and the Greens went down. And in fact, New Zealand First went down at the same time. But and remember so, that the me, reason they changed the leader was because the Greens went up so high and Labour went so low. So exactly. indirectly, it did right. cause it. Yeah. Right. You, know, that's the, you know, you're absolutely right. Labour got, was like, we have to do something. They changed their leader. Um, but the point is that Greens are locked into this dynamic of, um, because what it means is that in opposition we can be good and strong, but as soon as we go into, um, as soon as it looks like Labor can create a government that the Greens could be part of, Green support goes down. So, so intrinsically we're always a weak part of any coalition. And so, you know, as I say, the dynamic just rolled out again over 10 years, and the thing for the Greens now is, do we do the same thing for another 10 years? Or do we actually start to say, look, this isn't really working for us um, strategically. We need, to, um, we need to do things a bit differently. And that's what I'm advocating. Now, a lot of what you're saying um, sounds a lot like the um, criticisms that uh, Gareth Morgan had of the Greens. And he's probably been following your career the whole time. And I know he's been a big supporter of the Greens. And, and that kind of, um, you know, the, the reticence to that to accept that type of argument is what led him to form top. Um, I became a candidate for top be for, for many of the same reasons that you raise. I'm just wondering, mm. you know, what you think of the Opportunities Party and, and the people who say that the Greens would lose votes by going with National uh, when clearly top was making a similar argument while remaining agnostic. Uh, they got a lot of criticism yeah. for that, but they did get at least 2.2% of the vote and probably will do better next time. You know, would if the Greens showed a willingness to do that, do you think that would collapse support for top and they could pick that that up? I feel like Gareth would uh, be happy and walk away in that scenario. Or, yeah, what, what do you think of top and the dynamic between top and the Greens? Um, that's an interesting point you've just made. I, I, I suppose there's a couple of different questions in there, and I'll, I'll try and count them. Um, the first thing is whether the Greens would lose support if they supported a national-led coalition. And I think, uh, and this is why I'm saying that I don't think the Greens can do that this election. I think it would destroy the party, partly because the Greens ran the campaign saying that they would support a Labour-led government and whether explicitly or implicitly kind of saying that they would not support a national government. And I think that the people who voted for the Greens would see it as a huge betrayal if the Greens now supported a national government. Um, plus, uh, 
as I said elsewhere, like in my blog, you know, that plus you've got an outgoing national government. It's a fourth term. The chances of them getting a fifth are pretty remote, um, especially now. Even if, even if they did, like even so, even if national forms a coalition, um, Jacinda, I think will will take it next time. So, you know, strategically for the Greens to make such a move, which is such a radical departure from the past, to support an outgoing national party, you know, that's basically going to be sinking over the next three years, I think that would be a major mistake as well. Um, plus the practical difficulty of getting it through the party. So I, I, so I just think it's impossible this time, and I think if the Greens tried to do it this time, it would destroy them. But um, what I think the Greens need to do is is um, start to build a strategy around taking that approach. And I think the, and it wouldn't be entirely agnostic in that I think the Labour would always be a preferred party for the Greens, and I think the Greens need to say that really clearly, that they would prefer to go with Labour, but, um, but it's not a guaranteed thing, you know, that they're, they're prepared to look at other options. And just being prepared to take seriously a conversation with National, I think, is... Um, would, would be a huge thing. And if the Greens did that, talked it through the party and and ran their campaign on that basis, then I think the Greens can survive. You know, I, I think the Greens can do well because the other side of it has got to be part of picking up other constituencies. And what I've said in my blog is I think, I, and I've thought for a very long time now that a really natural constituency for the Greens is small business people and self-employed who, you know, there's like 450,000 small businesses employing people in this country. The Greens had less than half of that voting for them in the election. So that's, that's a, and um, the Greens would never get 100% of those people, but I think that, that Greens' interest in local economies, in um, self-reliance and personal autonomy in businesses that are embedded in local communities and local ecologies, all those kinds of things, I think could... Um, and even things like the Greens' uh, opposition to the Food Act, which was supported by both National and Labour, which, which is creating really significant hardship for small food businesses. It doesn't do anything... You know, big, the big uh, food companies, it doesn't worry them at all, but small local food businesses are having these massive new costs and new compliance because of this ridiculous act that, you know, um, the Greens opposed that, but they opposed it. They, they didn't kind of oppose it on the basis that it was going to harm small business generally. And I think could, there's a number of issues that the Greens could really talk to small business on and pick up a lot of support and, and create a, a really good conversation in the small business community, you know. So, so the Greens have to pick up new constituencies at the same time as kind of repositioning themselves, and then I think it can really work for them. To come to the question about the Greens' relationship with, with TOP or kind of the dynamic between TOP, I mean, um, I, I suppose my, my thoughts on, on the Opportunities Party and on Gareth is that, um, Gareth Morgan, is that um, I think that there's some really great ideas in there and I really kind of welcomed that those ideas were being put into the public arena, but I thought it was a real error to start the party. And I say this on the basis that lots of different people have said to me, oh, we, we, we want to start a party around such and such. And I've, and I've always said that New Zealand doesn't need more political parties, although with the number of parties being destroyed at this last election that that may have changed but <laughs> yeah. generally New Zealand doesn't need 
doesn't need more political parties. What we need is, is a movement that creates a constituency for change. And I always felt that, um, that the Opportunities Party would have been more effective as a kind of cross, working in a cross-party manner to, to seed these ideas into the debate. Um, I mean, I know you said that you think they'll do better next time, but I, I'd be su- surprised. I think it, it's. I think people often underestimate the how difficult it is to get parliamentary representation for a party that doesn't already have sitting MPs. Mm. Um, the only time I'm aware anyone's done it was was Winston Peters when he was voted out, and then he came back. Um, no one else, to my knowledge, has been able to achieve um, parliamentary representation without having a sitting MP in the party. And so I, I um, yeah, I think it'll be enormously difficult. It, it sounds like you're suggesting we poach a sitting Green MP. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> uh, just finally... Uh, you tried that, didn't you? <laughs> just finally, um, I, and I really appreciate you taking so much time to chat with us, Nandor. Um you know, now that uh, the cannabis issue has really come of age and it seems like uh, it's a definite inevitability, although those, uh, although those of us who have been watching the issue long enough uh, know not to uh, count our chickens before they hatch. But, you know, when it, when it comes back and when it is fully destigmatized and, you know, when you've had enough time to sort of heal and recover from the trauma that was being subjected to the beehive, do you think we'll see a national political stage come back for Nandor Tensos? I mean, you're you're in the local <laughs> body now. You'll probably be a mayor not too long. And, and then what will you do? You're still so young. Um, is, is it a possibility? Oh, um, I, I, I'm not someone who ever said... Who, I, I try to avoid saying never to anything because who knows how things unfold. And... Um, yeah, like I, ne- I never really set off to become an MP, but I got involved in the Greens and um, we, we created a kind of activist group within the Greens and then the kind of opportunity arose and the timing was right and the door opened. Um, so, um, so I'm not someone to say, to say never, but at this stage I don't, re- I don't have any um, plans or intent to go back to national politics. Um, I'm really enjoying life away from it. <laughs> yeah, well, you were you were pretty adamant when you gave your valedictory speech uh, that it wasn't for you. But you know, I just just thought I'd ask, and we've got the exclusive not ruling it out answer. So uh, we'll we'll go with that. And uh, we we really appreciate you taking the time, Nandor. And and I hope it won't be the last time. And I do hope that we will get to host you at the Fakamana Cannabis Museum uh, at some time in the near future. Oh. Yeah, I'd like that. I'd like that. Cool. Hey, well, thanks for joining us. Good to talk to you, man. Have a good one.